Namartasa Bhagavato Arato Summa Sambuddhasa Namartasa Bhagavato Arato Summa Sambuddhasa Namartasa Bhagavato Arato Samma Sambuddhasa Buddhang Dhammang Sanghang Namasami Today is a day that I would like to uh, celebrate, celebrate the birth and the awakening and the passing into Parinirvana of the historical Buddha, Buddha from 2,500 or so years ago. And that is because the typically traditionally in, um, early Buddhist countries that are practicing early Buddhism, the day is called Vesak, the full moon of May. It's known as Vesak. And it's a big deal. It's like a, the biggest holiday, one of the biggest holidays of the, the Buddhist tradition. Uh, in Japan and Zen tradition, they decided to celebrate those three days separately. I'm not sure exactly why, maybe more cake, I'm not sure. <laughs> but um, yeah, in Theravada countries or early Buddhist practitioners, early Buddhist monasteries, we, uh, we have it all together in one day, Vesak. And uh, some of you may have even seen the full moon. We had this uh, full moon eclipsed here on the East Coast, shortly after midnight, so I was way past my bedtime, but <laughs> maybe some folks saw it or saw photos of it. But uh, that's why we have some flowers here on the, on the altar, on the shrine. And uh, it's kind of special, a little special extra for us. And there was cake and uh, and it's a wonderful, it's a, it's a recollection of this historical personage. Right? It's a recollection of the life of this human being, this man who lived in Northern India and was actually born in what's now current day Nepal in Lumbini in the Sala Grove, it said. Queen Maya gave birth to him. And I'm not going to go into a lot of detail about his life, but just to say that, so he, he was born, there were, you know, there are many stories about the special things that happened at the time of his birth. 
But one thing that I find interesting is that it's said that uh, initially he knew that he was coming to wake up, even right after his birth, immediately after his birth. And this has something to do with the teaching of Kama and the teaching of the, the beneficial results of our actions. Um, and yet, interestingly, with, based on the records that we have in the Pali, which are known as the Nikayas, or uh, the Pali discourses, some people call it the Pali canon, but that's a bit um, like elevating your own books over other people's books. <laughs> there is the Chinese translations of them or the Chinese versions of them and the Agamas and the Echo, Echo Tara, Echo Tarika Agamas and, um, and Sanskrit versions and so on. But the, what we see in these early teachings is we don't see him, even after his awakening, say, oh, this is going to take you thousands of lifetimes to do what I have done. He doesn't actually say that. He says, he says it is possible. It is possible for you. It is possible that you could set that intention in this lifetime. And he named a number of different types of intentions, in fact, not just necessarily waking up, but like just having a, a better time next time or having more money next time or being in heaven or things like that. And um, he said, yeah, all of those things are possible for a human being to aspire to. But really, really give it your all. This was his, his main teaching, right? It was about this life, this life that we have right in front of us. In fact, he said again and again, I'm, I'm only telling you the things that I know that you can do, that I know that you can practice. There are many other things that I could be teaching you that I've discovered on my own, but I'm only telling you the things that would actually be useful to you. And what some of the things that he told were about his own story of awakening. And it starts with him setting down the, the uh, life that he had. It starts with him changing the life that he had. So he was part of the Kshatriya clan, the, or the, sorry, the Shakya clan, but the Kshatriya caste or the sort of category, social category, which was the warriors and the leaders. Um, so kings and, and uh, princes, although they weren't, they weren't sort of like nationalities in the way that we understand them today at that time in India. But he was part of this group and he'd been trained actually as a warrior and as a political leader. And, um, and it said that he did very well at, those, at that training. 
But he set that down. The first thing that he did was that he took up a path of harmlessness, of ethics, of saying, I won't be killing creatures. I won't be killing human beings. I won't be killing any creatures as best I can. And so he takes up that path of harmlessness, although it does involve some pain for his family, we should acknowledge that. He left his wife and his child and his parents. He left the palace and the people who knew him in order to go on this pursuit, to go find his way. And he later comes back actually and brings his whole family brings his whole family into the fold, into the teachings, into the path as well. But first he has to find it for himself. And, and there's a pivotal point at which the Buddha finds that he's been striving very hard. He's been working very, very hard and doing this very extremely disciplined ascetic practice. And he realizes that he needs to balance that out. That just that kind of pushing, forcing the mind or forcing the body isn't going to actually relieve his suffering. That isn't going to be the solution. And so he intentionally reflects on joy, on joy that he experienced as a child, just sitting still under a tree enjoying the nice weather, relaxing the mind, relaxing the body. And he remembers that natural joy that came up for him at that point. And he says to himself, wow, why be afraid of that? Why push that away? Not a joy that's based on what other people do for me, but a joy that can arise inwardly. from relaxing and from knowing myself and knowing this mind and letting stillness help bring some, some uplift. So he, he finds this balance. He finds this way of actually being kind to himself, right? He has to learn to be kind to himself if he's going to wake up. So it's a key, it's a very pivotal point for him. And that happens. And then he makes, he makes progress. He gets, he's, he's still quite strict. You know, he sits down and says, oh, I'm going to stay seated until I wake up. Still quite uh, persevering. And he gets, as he's getting closer, he has some encounters with Mara. And Mara is known some people think of Mara as being like the devil, and I think that's actually putting it a little too harshly. Mara is more like a trickster. Mara is more like, is it, you can view Mara as being the inner shadow, the side of us that is making things hard, that's tripping ourselves up. Or you could view Mara, and, and the Buddha seemed to describe it as, as an actual being, as like a job, actually. There would be a Mara for a certain period of time, and then that person would pass away, and then there would be a new Mara. So it's like a role to be the trickster. And um, 
And so anyway, so Mara approaches the Buddha as he's before he's become the Buddha, right? So at that point, he calls himself the Bodhisattva, right? And that's, that's a Sanskrit term means, literally, it means awakening and being, Bodhisattva, awakening being. And so while he was still the Bodhisattva and Mara approaches him knowing that he's getting close and tempts, tries to tempt him with various things or scare him and none of that stuff works. But then finally there comes this question. And Mara asks the Buddha, who are you to deserve to awaken? Who are you to be that special person that is going to wake up? And it's a beautiful question. It's a very, I think it's a question that all of us need to confront sooner or later, even in small ways. We need to really confront that question of our own worthiness to find a life of peace and happiness. And wisdom, importantly, and wisdom. And so what the Buddha, the way that the Buddha responded to Mara was that he did what's known as Bhumi Parshva, Bhumi Parsha. And that means touching the earth. Maybe you've seen statues with this gesture where the Buddha has his right hand downward. Yeah, touching the earth. And he says, the earth is my witness. Earth is my witness. And so there's a couple of ways to interpret this. One way is to interpret this to say, yes, I have, even though I've been striving alone, right? He had been sitting alone, he had been practicing alone for much of the time, especially this last bit um, leading up to the awakening. The earth knows that I have made the effort that I have done what needs to be done. The earth knows. But another way to, to interpret it, or perhaps I would say this, my personal interpretation of it is something like, we are beings of the earth. Simply to be a being of the earth is enough, is good enough. Because these these bodies and minds, these lives that we're living are what we're waking up to. That is what we're waking up to. How is it that these bodies and minds are demonstrating the truths, are demonstrating reality? So just to be a being that could touch the earth means good enough, deserving enough. We have that capacity. And the Buddha taught that over and over again, over and over again. He didn't believe that necessarily everybody would understand him or want to be on the path. In fact, he was quite respectful of other people who didn't want to be on the path. But he did say, the door is open to anyone. The door is open. And so he touches the earth and he wakes up wakes up to this incredible, he, named, he calls it the, um, three, the three knowledges, tevija, the three knowledges or the three forms of knowing. 
And they're about that. They're about karma and they are his own karma and other people's karma. And they're also about uh, what's known as the dependent origination or like the specific chain of events that works together to create the arising of dukkha, the arising of unsatisfactoriness and how that chain could be broken. Just very, just stopped in its tracks and it would stop arising. So it's said that he, he goes through the chain in the forward direction and sees how that series of events happens that makes arising, uh, the arising of suffering and unsatisfactoriness. And then he also sees how if you cut the chain, then this doesn't happen and that doesn't happen and the next thing doesn't happen. So the breaking of that cycle. And then he takes a little time to enjoy the bliss, <laughs> a few weeks. <laughs> it said it took about seven weeks for him. He sat enjoying the bliss for seven weeks. That's not a bad vacation. That's pretty good, you would say, not too, too long. <laughs> and then he gets up and he spends the next 45 years teaching walking barefoot in simple clothes, collecting food donations every day, sitting in meditation, giving Dhamma talks day after day after day after day for 45 years. That's um, compassion. That's a tremendous gift, tremendous gift. So he turned this knowledge of dukkha, of unsatisfactoriness, and he, and he learned how to break that chain for himself. But then he let that knowledge also of, of dukkha open his heart to, and see how other people were experienced, were still caught up in that and see that perhaps he could make a difference. So he goes and he teaches and he teaches and he teaches and he teaches and he teaches. And many people remembered, thankfully. But so then it comes time for his death. So he's, and, and the stories are different actually when, uh, so I'm gonna give a class in the fall, all things going as planned on the Zen stories of awakening, called a book called The Transmission of the Light. And, and the stories are a bit different in terms of the years and such, but the overview is the same. And, and what happens is that uh, comes his time to die. So at that point, he's about 80, right? He taught for 45 years. He was 35 when he woke up, so he's 80. And he's lived quite the demanding life. So it's, uh, it's his time. And interestingly, he does say, they ask him various things, knowing that he's, he, he knew three months ahead of time. He said, in three months, I'm going to die. And so we need to go visit this place and this place. And he did a bunch more teaching again, specifically for that reason, and saw certain 
places and certain people. And, um, and they asked him, they asked him, well, should, you know, what should we do with your remains? And he said, oh, you should build a stupa. That's an appropriate thing to do, which was news to me actually, because I had heard previously that he said that he didn't request that, but actually he says that it's an appropriate thing to do. He doesn't make the request. They asked him, according to the records that are in the public, what to do with his remains. And so that's what he says. So maybe you all have seen also photos of stupas or you've actually been to see them, right? These kind of like mounds, these rounded mounds. Oftentimes they have a big spire or a big peak in the middle, or they would have different um, inscriptions around them. But the original ones were very, very simple. It's just like, it looks like a burial mound, but it's actually made up of clay that's more solid. And, um, and he also said, go visit the four places for inspiration. Go visit the four places. Which four places? The places of his birth, the place where he woke up. So he was born in Lumbini, right? Now, Southern Nepal. And then he woke up at Bodh Gaya, right? There's a huge temple been built there now. Huge, huge temple to recognize him. There's the descendant of the tree that he sat under. So they say the Bodhi tree. Yeah. And then there is the place of his first teaching. So Sarnath. Sarnath is where he gave the first teaching to the five folks who had been practicing with him before his awakening. So five other ascetics. And where it's said that he first transmitted the Dharma to other people. That's where the Dhamma then ceases to be his and becomes actually for everyone. It moves beyond the Buddha himself to Kondanya. Kondanya, who becomes Anya Kondanya, Kondanya who knows in that first teaching there at Sarnath. And then the place of his death, which is in Kushinagara. So he said, go visit those places and so that you might be inspired. And again, this is the Buddha, I think, in his humanity, the Buddha as a simple human being saying, look, you could walk there, you could sit under the same tree. If that's what inspires you and lifts you up and helps you practice, then by all means, go visit, go see those places because you too can do this practice. That's what, those, that's what the pilgrimage is for. Yes, we, we, we honor him, we appreciate him, we respect him and have gratitude for his having discovered the path and shared it. But the intention of going to those places is so that we recognize in ourselves, recognize ourselves as practitioners, recognize in ourselves the path. Right? And he just sat under a tree. <laughs> he just sat down under a tree. And most importantly, he says, so, so in Diga Nikaya 16, in the long discourse number 16, and it's probably one of the largest, longest, if not the longest discourse 
in the Pali text that describes the Buddha's last months, last few months, and his death, and what happens shortly, very shortly after his death. And in that sutta, he says to the practitioners, he says, you may think that after I die, your teacher is gone. And he said, you shouldn't think like that. Don't think that. Because after I'm gone, then the Dhamma and the Vinaya. So the Vinaya is the, you could say the, the um, sort of lifestyle recommendations, right? The Vinaya represents the monastic rules and it also is a series of stories about how the Buddha told people to practice, how to maintain their ethics, um, stories about things that went wrong and how he responded to that uh, when people uh, crossed boundaries or did things that other folks weren't appreciating. They would come to him and he would tell them how to do better. And um, Again, his great compassion, people would make all kinds of mistakes and the folks would come to him and he would talk about how to remedy that. How to remedy that. It was very rare that people would get thrown out of the order. There are very, very few things that could get you in trouble to that extent because he knew that we would make mistakes and that we would then feel that we wanted to do better. We wanted to be able to stay on the path all of us. And so he makes that possible in the Vinaya. So the Dhamma and the Vinaya are your teacher after I'm gone. Right? So what does Dhamma mean? Dhamma has a variety of meanings. It can mean the laws of nature. It can mean reality itself. It can mean the teaching. Right? Those things that are in those texts, those teachings. Dhamma can also mean just general things like phenomena or principles. In the Satipatthana, we see Dhamma as principles of you know, qualities of mind or principles of our experience. So there are a variety of ways to think about what this word Dhamma means. But I think that that's an important exploration for us. Because this word Buddha doesn't just mean some person who lived thousands of years ago. It means awakening itself. That's what that word Buddha stands for. In fact, it comes from the Pali root, awake, Buddha. Bud, Bodhi, all of those words to, are all pointing at the same thing, at awakening or enlightenment. They all have the same verbal root. So, so to say Buddha means awakening. What is it to celebrate awakening or to discover awakening?
certainly we look to the Buddha for instructions on this, some direction, some help. We look to his experience. But, but again, this is a path that each one of us walks with our own individual set of conditions. So what does this word awakening, this word Buddha really mean? Beyond that historical personage, beyond the books. Um, a number of years ago, I was living at a place in New York, uh, something similar to this, actually. It was a small uh, monastery, temple, residential dwelling for myself, and the community would come, and it was in a little suburban town called New Rochelle, just about, I don't know, 25, 30 minutes up the train ride north of New York City. And um, I was living in New Rochelle and it was time to celebrate Buddha's birthday. And so I went to the bakery, the Hispanic bakery, which was just like literally a block and a half down the street. And I said in Spanish, I would like a birthday cake. And I, so I pointed at this one cake and I said, I wanted to say in English, happy birthday, Buddha. And he said, in Spanish, he said, Okay, can you spell it? <laughs> the Buddha part. And I said, okay. So I wrote it down for him, right? I wrote it down. And he went back in the back to, uh, to ask the person who did the frosting on the cakes to do that. And then he came back out and he said to me, Rosado o azul? Pink or blue? And I was stopped in my tracks. He said, pink or blue, pink or blue, what color frosting did I want? And I asked him, I said, are you asking me what color frosting I want? And he said, yeah. And I said, I was, I was kind of stunned for a second. And I thought, because I thought to myself, well, Buddha isn't pink or blue or yellow or purple or male or female or they or them or Zed or whatever. Buddha is not definable in that way. Or you could say it's all of those things. So for a second there, I was kind of stuck in the guy sort of looking at me. Like, don't you know whether Buddha, whether this person that you're buying a cake for is a, wants pink or blue? So I just said, well, just white, just white uh, frosting. So he said, okay, okay. So he went back to the back, told the person that was doing the frosting, okay, white, blanco. And then he came again while that person was doing the writing. He came back to the front and he said, is it a person? <laughs> and again, I was sort of like, ooh, so many koans today. <laughs> so many hard questions. Is Buddha a person? Ooh, yes, no, both both of those answers would be okay, right? Are we gonna get into a whole philosophical discussion about awakening with this lovely gentleman from the Hispanic bakery? I don't know. 
I don't know. So, so I just, I was just quiet for a minute. And again, he kind of waited to see what's going on. And I, I finally answered with the convention. And I said, yes, it's a, it's a man who lived a long time ago. And he said, okay. And then he went back in the back and he got the cake and he showed it to me. Beautiful chocolate cake with little white letters that said, happy birthday, Buddha. And then as he started to put the cake in the box, he turned to me and he said, is it an offering? Es una ofrenda. And I was so touched. I was like, oh my gosh, he got it somehow. Like not even me explaining what it is. And he's certainly not Buddhist. You know, he's wearing his, his, uh, uh, his cross. And, you know, maybe he could be Christian and Buddhist at the same time, but I'm pretty certain that he wasn't, you know. And yet somehow this came across that it's an offering. And it was just such a beautiful moment because it was like, right, now he got it. Now he knows what Buddha is. I didn't have to tell him. Right? Buddha is that which inspired this offering. Right? This life that wants to make that offering, this heart that's open to doing that, this joy of like, well, what is it? All of those things. So when we ask, where is awakening? Where is awakening? I would suggest that there's no place where you can't find it. So really, when we talk about taking refuge in Buddha, so taking refuge is one of the you know, most uh, what could we say? It's one of the most common ways of expressing being a practitioner, thinking about turning again and again toward the triple gem, the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. And yet, really, to, to be on this path, to be taking refuge, to be one who is, you could say, relating to Buddha, Buddha as the historical personage, and Buddha beyond that is to be resting in awakening. What is it to rest ourselves in awakening? To rest this mind and heart in the awakening that's possible right here. I was recently, uh, Mikala was here visiting for a while and she was uh, able to attend this retreat. Mikala was online there. Uh, I was recently giving a retreat about the approach to Nibbana. 
approach to this uh, realization, realization of awakening. And really thinking about that, how to, to realize that peace, which is encompassing everything, which is encompassing the harmony of all the activity and the cessation, the pain and the beauty, it's encompassing all of those things. It's right in the midst of all of those things, that incredible peace that we can experience. We experience it as a form of resting in the reality of things. That's why the Buddha talked about realization as beginning with knowing and seeing things just as they are. That's why we talk about practice in the moment now. That's why we talk about this body and mind as not just our vehicles, but actually the, the thing itself, the study itself, the grist for the mill. So when you become that, that harmony of reality, then that is that awakening that can be shared. Once you realize that, then it can be shared. And up until that point, that reality is present, but you can't really share it or partake in it yet. Ajahn Chah famously said, the reality of non-grasping is Nibbana. The reality of non-grasping is the realization of ultimate peace, is the realization of awakening. So Buddha, Buddha which goes beyond pink or blue frosting, Buddha which goes beyond Bodhagaya, Buddha which goes beyond history or future, right? This way of thinking that, oh, maybe, you know, one lifetimes, thousands of lifetimes from now. Buddha that goes beyond all of that. It's right here. It's right here. Right there in the Latino bakery in New Rochelle. Right here in Alexandria. Right there where you are, all of you who are online. And thankfully, we have that history of that person who learned that for himself and shared his absolute confidence in that fact. Shared his absolute confidence in all of us. 
for 45 years. And what were his last words, his last instructions? His last instructions. Vayadama sankara, apamadena sampadeta. All constructed things are leaving, are ceasing, are falling apart. Strive on with diligence, fulfill the path with diligence. So this word apamadena, which I'm translating as diligence is, is usually uh, shared that way. Although interestingly, it also is described in the Abhidhamma as meaning mindfulness. So really be mindful, bring your mindfulness to bear. And sampadeta, sampadeta is a Pali word that means to fulfill the thing, to be successful, to attain something, except that Nibbana is not an attainment in that way, not getting something, because it's not a feather in your cap. And so Bhikkhu Bodhi, when he was talking about this, it was very, very interesting to hear him speak about it in Pali class a couple of years back. He said this word Sampadetta has the sense of succeeding naturally, like succeeding because that's what it would naturally do. Like if you plant rice, then when you, when the rice sampadetta, when it's ready for to be harvested, that's what it did, it's sampadetta. It does what it naturally does and, and fulfills the, it's, it's, uh, it's path. So I, I leave you with the Buddha's last words. Huh? Keep going, keep going with the knowledge that the Buddha is not far away. Awakening itself is so close. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.